T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The world evolves with every revolution around the sun, but in 2020, change has seemingly shifted into an even higher gear from the coronavirus pandemic, racial unrest in the U.S., China's growing power, and incessant conflicts in the Middle East to the Ukraine, the world seems to be as fragile as ever. Joining the crisis next door to talk about our changing world is Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The World, A Brief Introduction. Dr. Haas, thank you for joining us here on the crisis next door. Jason, thanks for having me. Americans in particular have been criticized for being too inward focused, even ignorant of global affairs. Do you hope that your book, The World, will help change that perception? <laughs> Ideally, but that would, that would, that would imply a, a vast readership. But what I'm hoping it actually does is, yes, those who read it come away much better informed. And I hope it stimulates a little bit of a national conversation. Uh, I just think it's wrong that you can graduate from virtually any high school or two or four year college uh, and come away without even having a fundamental or rudimentary knowledge of the world that will change your life in all sorts of ways. Or if you're watching the nightly news on one of the networks, again, you will be no wiser about the world for it. Or same holds true of many places on the internet. So uh, uh, what I'm hoping, again, is uh, we see a national conversation about what does it mean to be prepared for a 21st century life. Why do you think Americans know so little or are not even interested in what's happening in the rest of the world? Well, there's a strong tradition of isolationism. We're a continental country. We're surrounded by two enormous oceans. Uh, so I think Again, there's this strand of Americanness where we're big enough and important enough uh, that we don't need the rest of the world. Or if we do, then the rest of the world has to, if you will, meet us more than halfway rather than vice versa, that our power and wealth and importance are so great that we don't have to bother learning with the world. Now, we learn the hard way in places like Vietnam and Iraq that not knowing a lot about foreign lands and cultures can be extraordinarily costly in terms of human life in terms of uh, wealth. Uh, and I, so again, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, even what we're going through now, this pandemic, I'm hoping that one of the things Americans take away is that what, begin, what begins in Wuhan doesn't stay there. 
nothing is local for long. This ought to have been the lesson, say, of 9-11, when terrorists coming out of remote Afghanistan uh, killed 3,000 people here in a single in a single day. So I'm hoping that these costly lessons drive home the point that we ignore the world at our peril. President Trump has been disengaging in several parts of the world, in particular the Middle East and Europe. Russia and China have already been taking advantage of that increasing vacuum. Is this dangerous for the world? Well, sure. The world is, when you take take a step back, and it's something I write about in the book, we've had a a great run of 70, 75 years coming out of World War II. There's been no great power war. Living standards have gotten better. Health has gotten better. There's more people living uh, in democratic or partly democratic countries. But this this is not an automatic. It's not inevitable. It came about in no small part because of American involvement in the world and American leadership. And there's no reason whatsoever to believe that these conditions survive uh, American withdrawal from the world. And if you do have countries like China and Russia becoming more influential because we've abdicated and pulled back, if one just looks at China and Russia for a second, there's, again, zero reason to believe that what they would try to bring about in the world would be anything consistent with our interests or values. Eastern Europe in particular has been concerned about the U.S. pullback with Poland and the Baltics fearful of Russia flexing its muscles and moving west. Is NATO's future at risk? It's at some risk. Uh, If one looks at what Mr. Putin did in uh, Ukraine and is still doing in Ukraine as well as Georgia, it reminds us that the use of force and a lack of respect for borders is not simply the stuff of history. It's also the stuff of the uh, present. This uh, President Trump has made no secret of his lack of uh, commitment at times to NATO. His criticism, he's been much more critical of NATO allies than he's been of NATO foes. And I think it's raised fundamental questions about our reliability and alliances depend upon reliability. Without it, uh, they, they tend to unravel. It's corrosive to have doubt. So it would not shock me if Mr. Putin decided at some point to probe just to see exactly what it is this United States is prepared to do or not. So NATO could end up being in the balance if Mr. Putin and Russia were to probe and the United States uh, was not there. Dr. Haas, you begin the world a brief introduction with a chapter on the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648. Why was this turbulent period in Europe so important to our current global makeup? The reason I go back to that and the reason it's so important and formative is at the end of it, in the middle of the 17th century, in 1648 to be more specific, you had the emergence of a world that, has, uh, that resembles in certain ways the present world. It's when what we call nation states or countries became the principal piece on the chessboard. And, we, and what was so significant about nation states is they had large, relatively large populations. They were able to concentrate or pool their resources. Uh, So you created these very powerful actors uh, on the uh, world stage, and certain rules emerged, or at least understandings, obviously at times violated, but the most important one, you had these entities called countries, and uh, they were essentially agreed not to try to change borders by, by going to war and not to interfere in what went on inside of one another's territory. And this was respect for sovereignty, and a lot of history is about when this broke down, obviously the two world wars. But 
this was uh, this was the beginning of a modern international system, and here we are today, several hundred years later. We have what 192 or three uh, countries, and while there's exceptions, for the most part, this is the basis of what stability and what order there is in the world. That so we can talk about Russia, say in in Ukraine, or 30 years ago we talked about Iraq going into Kuwait. But the good news is, are these the exceptions? And even though the world is not a perfect place, there's any number of conflicts within countries, any number of other challenges, for the most part, for the time being, uh, we seem to have uh, largely brought about a world where wars on an enormous scale between modern countries tend to be relatively rare. Most people assume a permanency when it comes to the idea of nation states. Hard to imagine countries going away, but is it possible one day for nation states to devolve back into, say, city states and empires? Oh, absolutely. In recent years, we saw the dissolution of the Soviet Union. We also saw the dissolution of uh, the former Yugoslavia. I can imagine in the future, any number of countries could have tendencies in that direction. Uh, Russia is one. Pakistan uh, is one. We saw it in recent years in Iraq. Any of these countries that are multi-ethnic, multinational, that don't have a strong national idea. You know, what's so interesting about the United States is we were a country not founded on an ethnic group, but we were a country founded on an idea. Uh, most countries are not founded on ideas. Uh, they're founded on geography. In some cases, they uh, came out of a colonial uh, experience or they're part of a former empire. And I think countries such as that are vulnerable potentially to, to break up, particularly if they're governed in a way where rather than creating a sense of national identity and national citizenship, uh, one group tends to then persecute or discriminate against another group. And if that happens, not surprisingly, the groups that are on the wrong end of discrimination often see independence and having a country of their own as, the, as their only path to a decent life. One of the chapters in The World, A Brief Introduction, focuses on nuclear proliferation. This week, 20 Indian soldiers died during a standoff with Chinese soldiers in a disputed region of Kashmir. The soldiers reportedly fought with sticks and stones, but both countries, of course, are nuclear powers. How worried should we be? Look, anytime nuclear powers or even non-nuclear powers come to blows, we should be worried. This was, this was something out of the past. This was almost medieval or biblical in how it was fought, fought. And I think it shows a certain respect for nuclear weapons and for modern war that both sides were apparently under restraint not to do uh, certain things. But look, it's a challenge between uh, China and India, because you have an unresolved border. It's obviously an even bigger challenge, I would say, between India and Pakistan, uh, who have fought any number of wars in the course of their existence, and again, are both, uh, are both nuclear powers. We have to worry about it with North Korea. Uh, I worry about it slightly less between the United States and Russia, but I do worry we're on the, we could be on the cusp of a whole new era of nuclear arms racing, and that's always, at a minimum, costly and potentially uh, destabilizing. Again, we seem to take so much for granted in the world that nuclear weapons will never be used, that major powers will not go to war. And I think what history teaches us, sorry to be rather sober, but I think history teaches us not to take, uh, not to take anything for granted. 
You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking with Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The World, A Brief Introduction. During the nearly 20-year war on terrorism, one of the U.S.'s biggest worries has been a non-state actor getting its hands on a nuke, whether from North Korea, Iran, or elsewhere. Do you feel those risks remain high? Sure. Uh, I worry that a desperate North Korea might put some nuclear materials in the market, or if North Korea ever collapsed, who knows where everything would go. I worry about it even more with Pakistan, about some elements in the Pakistani security services uh, having loyalties other than to the Pakistani uh, state. I also worry now, uh, because of the pandemic, that there might be increased interest in some type of biological terrorism. People have taken note of just how uh, powerful in this case, a, uh, a virus was. And I expect there's some um, evil people out there who are thinking about what they might be able to do in a laboratory in order to bring a country to its, uh, to its knees. So I think we have to worry about what's called grand terrorism uh, manifesting itself in, in any number of ways. Dr. Haas, China's power continues to increase, and it's exercising that in Hong Kong, the East and South China Seas, and in Kashmir, as we talked about just now in the standoff with India. Does China have an opportunity to be a benevolent superpower, or will it remain maligned in its approach to the rest of the world? I'm not sure I'd probably agree with either of those. Look, China is a growing power. I don't much like the phrase superpower because I think we live in an age where power is more distributed and in more hands. But China is obviously uh, a rising power. In many ways, it's a, a great power economically already. Demographically, it's obviously one of the two largest countries in the world. Militarily, it's becoming ever more uh, powerful. I, I also think, though, China has its hands full at home. Um, if you talk to any Chinese leader, he or she does not take for granted the uh, integrity of uh, China as a country. They're very worried about uh, centrifugal tendencies. They've got demographic problems because of the one-child policy, that legacy. They've got environmental problems. The economy has slowed down uh, considerably. So China, China has its uh, hands full. I also don't think it's a model that's terribly appealing around the uh, world. And I think we're seeing considerable pushback, uh, pushback against it. No, I think, I think what Chinese leaders think most about is keeping the country together and being first among equals in its part of the world in the Asia Pacific. And the danger, I think, for us is that in its, given China's goals in the region, whether at some point we potentially find ourselves uh, clashing either over the South China Sea or possibly over Taiwan. We've seen China issue new security laws for Hong Kong following the pro-democracy movement in 2019. Is there any realistic path to remaining somewhat independent for Hong Kong? Is there anybody else that can come to Hong Kong's rescue, or is it really a fait accompli that it will just become a part of China as Beijing wishes? I think it's pretty close to becoming a fait accompli. China essentially has decided to violate its commitment made to the United Kingdom in 1997 that there would be one country and two systems. Essentially now we have one country and increasingly one system. My guess is the Chinese decided they could take advantage of the distraction of the United States and much of the world because of the pandemic. Also the Chinese, if you remember, have so mishandled the pandemic at home, particularly in the first month, my guess is they were worried that if protests continued in Hong Kong, they may catch on on the mainland 
and Xi Jinping himself could be a target of those uh, of those protests. So I think they made the very uh, calculated decision that whatever price they had to pay for cracking down in Hong Kong was a price worth paying. That they they couldn't allow things to fester there. Again, it would set an example. They didn't want to be set, much less to, to spread. And if it sent a sobering message to Taiwan, so much the better. I think, the, again, the Chinese decided that, uh, I think they, pre- they figured they would pay a price, but, uh, but the price of not acting from their, from their own particular point of view was probably greater. Dr. Haas, two other chapters in your book focus on globalization and migration. The world has been inexorably marching on a path to globalization for decades, while migration patterns have been shaped by the Middle East wars over the past decade. How do you see the pandemic affecting both of these issues? Well, globalization, I mean, globalization is one of the realities of the world. It's not a choice. How we respond to it is the choice. The pandemic is simply one of the uh, examples or manifestations of globalization. Climate change is one. Proliferation we've been talking about is another. Terrorism is yet uh, another. Cyberspace is uh, another. You know, what you would hope in a in a perhaps optimistic way, is that people would see how vulnerable we are to some aspects of globalization, in this case, pandemics, and that the world would strengthen its machinery either to predict or prevent the next pandemic for, or for coping with it if and, were, if and when it were to happen all the same. And unfortunately, uh, I don't see a lot of that uh, I don't see a lot of that going on. The World Health Organization is flawed. The United States, though, seems to me made a, a poor decision. If something is flawed, you either improve it or you build something better in its place. You don't. You, you just don't simply walk away. So I don't see uh, how that makes much sense. I don't think we have in place the preparations we, we need to produce and distribute and pay for a vaccine if one were to be uh, invented in, in, in some laboratory. And this is an example across the board, whether we're talking about climate or any other issue, that you have these challenges. And the mechanisms in place, the rules, the arrangements, what have you in place, are simply inadequate to the task. And there's a, a large gap between the challenges and these these, these arrangements. And if anything, the, I'm sad to say that the gap in some cases is growing. Climate change has seemingly taken a back seat to the pandemic in 2020. And of course, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Accord, has been a supporter of coal. How far has this setback hopes of mitigating climate change? And can the rest of the world make up for the U.S. not being proactive? Climate change is a tough issue for the world to deal with because it's so pervasive. There's no single response to it. Plus, it's a slow motion crisis. It's very hard to galvanize a response. One of the things you see in the business management literature a lot, Jason, is this idea of the urgent crowding out the important. And that happens to climate change. Uh, other crises come along that seem to be more urgent. And there's a sense that climate change, yeah, well, we can always get around to it. And the problem is by the time we get around to it, it's going to be too late. And all the good options will, uh, will have long since uh, uh, been gone. Uh, I think the United States should be in Paris, but we shouldn't kid ourselves. Uh, the Paris Accord is inadequate, even if we were in it. Even if the Paris Accord were, were all of its standards were met, climate change would still be advancing at a significant uh, clip. So my own view is we need some other approaches. Uh, and I would, I would look at such things as in our own country, and hopefully others would follow, 
would be uh, as you as we recover from the pandemic, can we marry economic recovery with more responsible climate policies? For example, if you give money, say to an automobile manufacturer, why can't it be conditioned on reaching certain mileage standards in their in any automobiles they produce? Or if you give money to a business that produces some good, why can't it be linked to uh, not using coal as a uh, as a source of energy? And one day we may need to have trade agreements where we basically say, if you want to export to us uh, something made uh, with with coal or what have you as a as the energy source, you're going to pay. You're going to have to pay extra. You're going to have to. We're, we're going to slap a tariff on you. So we may end up trying to get towards a, a more responsible world dealing with climate, not through a single agreement that 192 or three countries sign on to, but rather more, more piecemeal. But whatever we do, we, we better do it fast. China seems to be taking its pollution problem seriously, finally increasing incentives for electric vehicle purchases. Can China be a leader, at least on this issue? Uh, I'm skeptical, uh, in part because it has so far to go. Also, in China, economic growth has been, in some ways, the source of legitimacy for the Communist Party in recent years, in recent decades. And whenever there's a big tension or trade-off between economic growth and responsible climate policy, economic growth tends to win out, which is one of the reasons the environment in China is so foul, and which has caused, among other things, terrible public health questions. So I don't believe China's in a position to lead, but China... I'm not fighting your question. China needs to be part of the answer. China's got, what, 1.3 billion people. It's got the world's second, at some point, first largest uh, economy. So we need China uh, on board. And we also need India on board, because it's only a matter of years before India overtakes China as the world's most uh, populous country. And, you know, India, take, you probably, what, have four or 500 people there, four or 500 million people there who don't have regular access to electricity who are still living in conditions of real uh, poverty, the path India takes to development and to modernization will be critical in affecting the world. So those countries matter. One other country that matters a great deal that doesn't get the attention it deserves is Brazil. Brazil is home to the Amazon rainforest. It's the greatest natural sponge for absorbing carbon dioxide and other gases. And right now, Brazil is essentially allowing the rainforest to be destroyed. And even though it's, it's to be found on Brazilian territory, the consequences will be, will be global. We will all pay a price if Brazil continues to act irresponsibly. Since you mentioned Brazil, I, I it brought a question to mind that I didn't even plan on asking, but it popped up. And that's regarding populism, a populist leader elected in Brazil. Obviously, many other countries around the world, including the U.S., the Philippines, Hungary. How do you see populism changing global politics in the coming years? Well, populism does well whenever there's certain social conditions, uh, rapid change, inequality, uh, politics not delivering, and so forth. And then people look for magic solutions. They, they'll buy a bill of goods by someone who promises the, the sky. And we've seen elements of it in this country. We're not immune from it. We've seen it around the world. Brazil is an obvious uh, place. We've seen it in, in Mexico. And it could, be, it could be, by the way, left wing or right wing. Often it though does mean big government. We see elements of it in Russia and China, uh, Philippines, and, and and so forth. And again, to me, it's a it's a sign of great change, and that lots of people either fearful from the change or see themselves as as losing out from it. And the only way to deal with populism is to have the system work, and that you need uh, 
politics to deliver uh, and some and there's opportunities more than anything else. So not in this country, it would mean improving education, improving infrastructure, uh, and so forth. And obviously, you need a level of support for all people, but you, know, you need to remove as much as you can the desperation that leads people to reject traditional politics and economics for, for something much more radical. Dr. Haas, you've been involved in government for many decades, a pragmatist, a realist. What is your thought for the world going forward in such a critical year like 2020? Look, these are, these are critical times and we're living amidst the, the pandemic, among other things. And I think there's a big lesson here, which is none of us can ignore the world. What happens anywhere doesn't stay there. It, it, it goes global. That's the first point. We've, we've got to accept that isolationism and denial are dead ends. Second of all, there's nothing any country can do, can do on its own better than it can do working with others. So we need partnerships. We need multilateralism. And every era of history has its big challenges. For example, in the first half of the 20th century, it was often Germany. Second half of the 20th century was the Soviet Union. I would argue in the 21st century, the biggest challenge are, challenges are this basket of global issues like pandemics, like climate change, like cyberspace, like proliferation, like terrorism, what have you. And that ought to be something that we design our foreign policy around. And ideally, we will manage, among other things, our competition and friction with China so we can still find ways to cooperate to meet these, these global challenges. And let's hope that optimism takes root and the world does indeed meet that challenge. Dr. Richard Haas, thank you very much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you, Jason. Great to be with you. We've been joined by Dr. Richard Haas, president of the Council on Foreign Relations and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The World, A Brief Introduction. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.